Welcome everyone to another regularly scheduled rerun. For our rerun today, we are revisiting what I think is an important underlying issue that needs to be understood as we continue to debate what to do about existing earned benefit programs such as Social Security or the potential of starting a like a universal basic income policy or anything like that. In short, understanding the frames through which we see low-income aid programs and the impoverished people at whom they're directed. Now, as for members, they got a new bonus episode in their feed today in which Amanda and I discuss a bit more of our personal experience with the cultural side of Bhutan during our brief visit after Climate Ride. Uh, we discuss things such as why do Bhutanese stray dogs seem so content, what our guide said might happen if someone accidentally spins the prayer wheels the wrong direction, and what a monk fed us when we were trapped in a cliff-face monastery during torrential rains. So for access to that and all of our previous and future bonus content episodes, and to support the work that goes into this show, which is available for free to everyone, sign up as a member at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, enjoy. We disdain the poor. Uh, we blame the poor. We fault the poor for not achieving more economic security. And we have, a, I think, a really unevolved uh, attitude about, about how to address poverty. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get commercial-free versions of every episode, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Off Kilter, The Inquiry, The Other Washington, a TED Talk by Rutger Bergman, and The Ezra Klein Show. Washington Post's Catherine Rampell used a December 24th column to dismiss as benighted college students protesting racism and sexism on campus. If students want to feel like victims, Rampell advised, there are very real underappreciated ways they're being economically victimized. What are the things those silly kids really ought to be upset about? Well, the headline tips you off. College students should aim their rage at older Americans, not administrators. Yes, it's still another iteration of what Dean Baker called a popular Washington pastime, trying to get young people angry at their parents and grandparents so that they're not bothered by the enormous upward redistribution of income taking place in the country. Rampell says, quote, our politicians are paying off older, higher voter turnout Americans in the form of generous benefits that those older people have not paid for and never will, which means the tab will need to be picked up by someone else, i.e. someone younger, close quote. She points to Medicare as paying out much more than is paid in taxes, saying that's just one way spending on the old is crowding out spending on the young. Well, you probably get the idea because you've probably heard it before, but repetition doesn't add to the argument's truthfulness. As Baker explains, you can find the full piece on fair.org, most of the reason the value of Medicare benefits exceeds the value of the taxes paid is not the generosity of the benefits received by our seniors. The main cause is the fact that we pay our doctors twice as much as doctors in Canada, Germany, and other wealthy countries. We also pay twice as much for our drugs and medical equipment. 
This is a case of upward redistribution from the rest of us to members of the 1%. But rather than talking about how the rich raise the cost of our health care, Rempel wants us to be upset at seniors. This is not to mention that Social Security also provides survivor and disability benefits that often help the young. Or to ask how cutting benefits for many older people or people with disabilities who live with their children or grandchildren would help anyone. Rampell's rhetoric misses the bigger picture, that the tax burdens associated with government debt or Social Security are a relatively small part of the overall economy that will be passed on to the younger generation. What, for example, of the generational inequity presumed by forcing children to grow up with parents who are unemployed or living in poverty because the debt-obsessed, beltway-minded won't let us spend the money to employ them or let them have decently paid jobs? Well, finally, Rampell's invocation of the boogeyman, political correctness, entitlements, and old people, oh my, is standard fare for the Washington Post. That worldview will be even less contested now that the paper has decided to end its contract with Harold Meyerson, a progressive reporter whose weekly pieces have run in the paper for the last 13 years. Meyerson wrote often about labor and government policy that benefited the haves over the have-nots. He's still editor-at-large of the American Prospect and writes for the L.A. Times. But evidently, Washington Post opinion page editor Fred Hyatt told Meyerson his columns had bad social media metrics and focused too much on issues like worker power. So, readers looking for alternative visions to that of Rampel's, of greedy old people sucking up benefits as an appropriate source of public rage, will have even less reason to pick up the paper. Think of us talking points and false choice after false choice. And there's no prominent voices on the left. Five companies own everything you read, hear, and see. Misleading the people, still calling it freedom of the press. Disaster of epic proportions, they got us all in. Traitors in our midst. Screwed over when corporations bought in. To Congress. Representatives of representing mostly lobbyists While the typical oblivious American is fine with all this Given the daily dose of celebrity gossip Government held hostage We kicked the worst out of office But at the core it remains rotten regardless Now how much can you rob the system Before it can be classified as like call a crime This is class warfare This is class warfare one particular subject where this comes up a lot for me, because uh, I've written about it a lot in the past as a, as a reporter, is uh, SNAP, food stamps, where uh, there's a, a similar construct around uh, this uh, perennial coverage of stories either about uh, food stamp fraud, which makes up, a, in reality, a very small percentage of actual uh, total total benefits dispersed. Less than 1%. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's an extremely prof- uh, efficient and uh, very, very not corrupt program, remarkably so. Um, but when there's a story of fraud, because, uh, because it fits into a certain narrative and also because reporters for obvious reasons are addicted to novelty then it becomes a story um and then the other thing is the uh the constant policing of the consumer habits of people on snap 
this and you see this in SNAP, SSDI, a, a number of other uh, benefits programs that receive any sort of media coverage where the uh, the myth of the deserving and the undeserving poor is just such a powerful legend. So if you see people making bad choices with the benefits they receive or doing something to indicate that maybe in, in some karmic way they don't deserve those benefits, that's a really incredibly powerful narrative that you can uh, retrofit to suit a number of actual factual landscapes, depending on on what they are. We saw sort of a feeding frenzy, no pun intended, uh, around SNAP uh, earlier this year when the New York Times ran a piece, a front page piece, um, that was all about what's in the grocery cart of a, a household helped by food assistance. And it was it was a, a big picture of lots of soda bottles. And oh, my God, they're spending it all on sugary beverages. It, of course, that wasn't actually true. That was the headline and the lead. But it was actually belied by the study from the U.S. Department of Agriculture that the New York Times was purporting to cover, um, but a great example of exactly what you're describing. Right. And um, if I'm remembering the story correctly, part of the issue is also that the New York Times failed to compare it to the uh, consumption habits of the average American family not on SNAP, which uh, I, I do think that uh, you know reporters obviously shouldn't fall into the trap of um, sanctifying poverty or... Um, because that's that's the flip side of the myth of the undeserving poor is the myth of the uh, the saintly intrinsically deserving poor, which is just is just buying the framing but approaching it from a different way. We're all humans, right? Exactly. We're all real people. It's um, no one's perfect, right? Uh, SNAP recipients and SSDI recipients should be should be treated like normal people, and the the expectation should be that they respond to to incentives and 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 uh, benefits or or penalties in the same way that any of us would. The same is very much true specifically with respect to reporting on people with disabilities. And that's not just specifically about Social Security disability benefits, but there's a whole kind of uh, ongoing discussion within the disability world and the journalism criticism world about uh, disability uh, porn. It's it's sort of this sympathetic, oh my God, patronizing, let's feel really bad for these people uh, kind of spin um, that paints them as not even humans, but as as objects deserving of our pity or our charity, um, at, at, but not as people who have complex lives and, and who deserve to be uh, speaking about their own situations in their own right. Right. And I think that's part of the subtext with some of the uh, the SSDI coverage where they say, you know, oh, this person, this person has uh, depression or um, this person has chronic pain. Do they really qualify for SSDI? It's, it's basically the, the subtext is this question of, whether or not they deserve the special category of moral person we assign to people who we decide are really, quote unquote, disabled. So back to your role as an editor and sort of what the responsibility is incumbent on people who work on these issues. Uh, it, it's hard to have this conversation without thinking about 1996 and the myth of the welfare queen, which was it was many years of reporting kind of reaching a crescendo in the early 90s that then didn't just provide cover. It sort of provided an imperative for Congress and the White House to act because there was such a national fervor around the perception 
perception that we had all these people in this country, particularly, and it was very racialized, single moms with who were popping out babies so that they could get all these 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 uh, supposed large welfare checks. Um, the welfare queen never existed, and there's been tremendous media uh, uh, and journalistic criticism, sort of tracing it back and finding the origin in in President Reagan's speeches. Um, but she had a huge impact, even though she wasn't real. And it feels very much like that's what we're watching here with this ongoing zombie lie um, about the Social Security disability programs and really public assistance and social insurance more broadly. What is your hope uh, and what is your uh, uh, call when it comes to journalists who work on these issues? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think that not enough journalists who report on these issues talk to uh, experts in in academia, uh, sociologists or um, public policy experts. I think also there needs to be more interaction with um, caseworkers, uh, social workers. Uh, you know, in in reporting on SNAP and other other poverty issues, I, I talk to a lot of people who work at at food banks. The uh, professional norms and the uh, the the code of ethics you're supposed to follow as a journalist differs from. The sorts of responsibilities you have if you work at a nonprofit, or if you even if you work as a as a sociologist uh, covering uh, low income populations, uh, so it doesn't mean talking to those people uncritically or deferring your entire perspective to them. But if you're going to get a holistic picture of what's actually going on, then you need to you need to consult experts, not just not just uh, whatever your idea of uh, both sides of a debate might be. I'd like to start with a simple question. Why do the poor make so many poor decisions? I know it's a harsh question, but take a look at the data. The poor borrow more, save less, smoke more, exercise less, drink more, and eat less healthfully. Why? Well, the standard explanation was once summed up by the British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, and she called poverty a personality defect, (laughs) a lack of character, basically. Now, I'm sure not many of you would be so blunt. But the idea that there's something wrong with the poor themselves is not restricted to Mrs. Thatcher. Some of you may believe that the poor should be held responsible for their own mistakes, and others may argue that we should help them to make better decisions. But the underlying assumption is the same. There's something wrong with them. If we could just change them, if we could just teach them how to live their lives, if they would only listen. And to be honest, this was what I thought for a long time. It was only a few years ago that I discovered that everything I thought I knew about poverty was wrong. It all started when I accidentally stumbled upon a paper by a few American psychologists. 
They had traveled 8,000 miles all the way to India for a fascinating study. And it was an experiment with sugarcane farmers. You should know that these farmers collect about 60% of their annual income all at once, right after the harvest. And this means that they're relatively poor one part of the year and rich the other. And the researchers asked them to do an IQ test before and after the harvest. What they subsequently discovered completely blew my mind. The farmers scored much worse on the test before the harvest. The effects of living in poverty, it turns out, correspond to losing 14 points of IQ. Now, to give you an idea, that's comparable to losing a night's sleep or the effects of alcoholism. A few months later, I heard that Elder Shafir, a professor at Princeton University and one of the authors of this study, was coming over to Holland, where I live. So we met up in Amsterdam to talk about his revolutionary new theory of poverty. And I can sum it up in just two words. Scarcity mentality. It turns out that people behave differently when they perceive a thing to be scarce. And what that thing is doesn't much matter, whether it's not enough time, money or food. You all know this feeling when you've got too much to do or when you've put a breaking for lunch and your blood sugar takes a dive. You know, this narrows your focus to your immediate lack, to the sandwich you've got to have now, the meeting that's starting in five minutes or the bills that have to be paid tomorrow. So the long-term perspective goes out the window. You could compare it to a new computer that's running 10 heavy programs at once. It gets slower and slower, making errors, eventually it freezes, not because it's a bad computer, but because it has too much to do at once. Now, the poor have the same problem. They're not making dumb decisions because they are dumb, but because they're living in a context in which anyone would make dumb decisions. So suddenly, I understood why so many of our anti-poverty programs don't work. Investments in education, for example, are often completely ineffective. Poverty is not a lack of knowledge. A recent analysis of 201 studies on the effectiveness of money management training came to the conclusion that it has almost no effect at all. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that the poor don't learn anything. They can come out wiser, for sure. But it's not enough. Or, as Professor Shafir told me, it's like teaching someone to swim and then throwing them in a stormy sea. I still remember sitting there, perplexed. And it struck me that we could have figured this all out decades ago. I mean, these psychologists didn't need any complicated brain scans. They only had to measure the farmer's IQ, and IQ tests were invented more than 100 years ago. Actually, I realized I had read about the psychology of poverty before. George Orwell, one of the greatest writers who ever lived, experienced poverty firsthand in the 1920s. The essence of poverty, he wrote back then, is that it annihilates the future. And he marveled at, quote, how people take it for granted. They have the right to preach at you and pray over you as soon as your income falls below a certain level. Now, those words are every bit as resonant today. The big question is, of course, what can be done? Modern economists have a few solutions up their sleeves. We could help the poor with their paperwork or send them a text message to remind them to pay their bills. Now, this type of solution is hugely popular with modern politicians. 
mostly because, well, they cost next to nothing. These solutions are, I think, a symbol of this era, in which we so often treat the symptoms but ignore the underlying cause. So I wonder, why don't we just change the context in which the poor live? Or going back to our computer analogy, why keep tinkering around with the software when we can easily solve the problem by installing some extra memory instead? Now, at that point, Professor Shafir responded with a blank look, and after a few seconds, he said, "Ah,、oh, I get it. You mean you you want to just hand out more money to the poor to eradicate poverty?" Uh, yeah, sure,、uh, that'd be great. But I'm afraid that brand of left-wing politics you've got in Amsterdam—it doesn't exist in the states. But is this really an old-fashioned leftist idea? I remembered reading about an old plan, something that has been proposed by some of history's leading thinkers. The philosopher Thomas More first hinted at it in his book Utopia more than 500 years ago. And its proponents have spent the spectrum from the left to the right, from the civil rights campaigner Martin Luther King to the economist Milton Friedman. And it's an incredibly simple idea: basic income guarantee. What it is? Well, that's easy. It's a monthly grant, enough to pay for your basic needs: food, shelter, education. It's completely unconditional. So no one's going to tell you what you have to do for it, and no one's going to tell you what you have to do with it. The basic income is not a favor, but a right. There's absolutely no stigma attached. So as I learned about the true nature of poverty, I couldn't stop wondering. I mean, is this the idea we've all been waiting for? Could it really be that simple? And in the three years that followed, I read everything I could find about basic income. I've researched the dozens of experiments that have been conducted all over the globe, and it didn't take long before I stumbled upon the story of a town that had done it, had actually eradicated poverty. But then, nearly everyone forgot about it. This story starts in Dauphin, Canada. In 1974, everybody in this small town was guaranteed a basic income, ensuring that no one fell below the poverty line. And at the start of the experiment, an army of researchers. Descended on the town. For four years, all went well. But then, a new government was voted into power, and the new Canadian cabinet saw little point to the expensive experiment. So, when it became clear there was no money left to analyze the results, the researchers decided to pack their files away in some two thousand boxes. Twenty-five years went by, and then Evelyn Fourier, a Canadian professor, found the records. And for three years, she subjected the data to all manner of statistical analysis, and no matter what she tried, the results were the same every time. The experiment had been a resounding success. Evelyn Fourier discovered that the people in Dauphin had not only become richer but also smarter and healthier. The school performance of kids improved substantially. The hospitalization rate decreased by as much as 8.5 percent. Domestic violence incidents were down, as were mental health complaints, and people didn't quit their jobs. The only ones who worked a little less were new mothers and students, who stayed in school longer. Similar results have since been found in countless other experiments around the globe, from the U.S. to India. So, 
Here's what I've learned. When it comes to poverty, we, the rich, should stop pretending we know best. We should stop sending shoes and teddy bears to the poor to people we have never met. And we should get rid of the vast industry of paternalistic bureaucrats when we can simply hand over their salaries to the poor they're supposed to help. <laughs> Because, I mean, the great thing about money is that people can use it to buy things they need instead of things that self-appointed experts think they need. I mean, just imagine how many brilliant scientists and entrepreneurs and writers like George Orwell are now withering away in scarcity. Imagine how much energy and talent we would unleash if we get rid of poverty once and for all. I believe that a basic income would work like venture capital for the people. And we, we can't afford not to do it, because poverty is hugely expensive. Just look at the cost of child poverty in the US, for example. It's estimated at $500 billion each year, in terms of higher healthcare spending, higher dropout rates, and more crime. Now this is an incredible waste of human potential. But let's talk about the elephant in the room. How could we ever afford a basic income guarantee? Well, it's actually a lot cheaper than you may think. What they did in Dauphin is they financed it with a negative income tax. And this means that your income is topped up as soon as you fall below the poverty line. And in that scenario, according to our economists' best estimates, for a net cost of $175 billion, a quarter of U.S. military spending, 1% of GDP, you could lift all impoverished Americans above the poverty line. You could actually eradicate poverty. Now, that should be our goal. The time for small thoughts and little nudges is past. I really believe that the time has come for radical new ideas. And basic income is so much more than just another policy. It is also a complete rethink of what work actually is. And in that sense, it will not only free the poor, but also the rest of us. Nowadays, millions of people feel that their jobs have little meaning or significance. A recent poll among 230,000 employees in 142 countries found that only 13% of workers actually like their job. And another poll found that as much as 37% of British workers have a job that they think doesn't even need to exist. It's like Brad Pitt says in Fight Club. Too often, we're working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. <laughs> Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not talking about the teachers and the garbage men and the care workers here. If they'd stop working, we'd be in trouble. You know, I'm talking about all those well-paid professionals with excellent resumes who earn their money during... Strategic transactor peer-to-peer -peer meetings while brainstorming the value add-on of disruptive co-creation in the network society. <laughs> Or something like that. Just imagine again how much talent we're wasting simply because we tell our kids they'll have to earn a living. Or think of what a math whiz working at Facebook lamented a few years ago. The best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. I'm a historian. And if history teaches us anything, it is that things could be different. There is nothing inevitable about the way we structured our society and economy right now. Ideas can and do change the world. And I think that, especially in the past few years, it has become abundantly clear that we cannot stick to the status quo, that we need new ideas. I know that many of you may feel pessimistic, 
about a future of rising inequality, xenophobia, and climate change. But it's not enough to know what we're against. We also need to be for something. Martin Luther King didn't say, "I have a nightmare." <laughs> He had a dream. So here's my dream. I believe in a future where the value of your work is not determined by the size of your paycheck, but by the amount of happiness you spread and the amount of meaning you give. I believe in a future where the point of education is not to prepare you for another useless job, but for a life well lived. I believe in a future where an existence without poverty is not a privilege, but a right we all deserve. So here we are. Here we are. We've got the research, we've got the evidence, and we've got the means. Now, more than 500 years after Thomas More first wrote about basic income, and 100 years after George Orwell discovered the true nature of poverty, we all need to change our worldview. Because poverty is not a lack of character. Poverty is a lack of cash. Love hanging out with older adults, and this is how it started. Our second expert witness, Adina Zeki Alhazuri, is a social epidemiologist, which means she studies how society affects our health. Who's the wisest old person you've ever met? Ah,、uh, that was my grandfather. He was a nurse, and、um, he's the one who started teaching me English. Thanks in part to her grandfather's efforts. Adina Zeki Alhazuri eventually moved from Lebanon to the U.S. to study, and is now an assistant professor at the University of Miami. She studies how brains age. At first, she thought her work would all be about studying her favorite kind of people, the elderly. But recently, she's done a major piece of work looking at a group of relatively young people, three and a half thousand adults in the U.S. who were aged between 18 and 30 back in 1985, and who've been tracked ever since. For two decades, the subjects reported what income they had. We looked at the influence of having sustained exposure to low income on brain function. What Adina Zeki Alhazuri and colleagues were trying to work out is whether being in poverty for a sustained period of time has a lasting effect on your brain. They also looked at people who said they felt poor, and all these people were asked to do three tests. Three cognitive tests that are widely used and they're considered very reliable to detect cognitive aging, meaning they're very sensitive to brain damage, to dementia, to age, etc. So while our last expert witness was looking at how poverty might use up your mental bandwidth, Adina Zeki Alhazuri has been looking at whether it could actually damage your brain, and the results, she says, suggest it might. We found that individuals who were exposed all the time to poverty over those 20 years performed significantly worse than individuals who were never in poverty. And those who were in between 
tended to be affected in proportion to how long they'd lived in poverty. So the more in poverty, the worse the performance was. Significantly so. The magnitude of the associations were sizable, and that tells us that there could be long-term consequences for the effects of poverty on the brain. Although the difficulty, she admits, is knowing which came first. If your brain doesn't work so well, you might become poorer rather than the other way round. To try to address that, the researchers then restricted the sample they were looking at to include only people who were in good health at the outset of the study and who were highly educated. We redid our analyses and we found the association between poverty and cognitive function remained. The effect was slightly smaller, but still there. So the trend was apparent even among highly educated people who'd fallen on hard times. I would say that poverty definitely changes the way we think. Our expert witness says that cumulative exposure to low income can change the way you think. That poverty and even just feeling poor could lead, for some people, to premature aging of the brain. And as our next expert witness argues, it could also affect the way your brain develops in childhood. Part three: Arrested Development. It's heartbreaking, you know, to observe firsthand. The impact of deprivation on a child is is truly heartbreaking. Katie McLaughlin, an associate professor of psychology at the University of Washington in the U.S., focuses her research on children in their early years because that's when the brain is developing the most. She's been studying children in orphanages in Romania. The institutions themselves they do not look like places where children should be raised. You know, the walls are barren. There are few toys. Around a few adults, that will always stick with you. A Romanian orphanage is not exactly a typical environment. If children there don't do well, it could be for all sorts of reasons, not just that they live in a kind of poverty. But Katie McLaughlin believes her findings do translate. If we can understand how this extreme form of deprivation impacts the way the brain develops, we may be able to learn something about what's going on in the brains of children who are growing up in poverty. Her work in Romania has been part of a large study of children who've had their development tracked from a very young age. The experiment actually involved randomizing children who were growing up in these deprived orphanages, either to be removed from the orphanage and placed into a very high-quality foster care that was designed and supported by the study, or to remain in the institution and essentially sort of a policy of non-interference to just let that child's life proceed as it would have if the study were not going on. The basic take-home from this experiment, she says, is that placing a child in a better environment can change the way their brain develops. You see that the children who were removed from the orphanage, especially if they were removed early in the first few years of life, demonstrate dramatic increases in IQ compared to children who remained in the orphanage for a longer period of time. Katie McLaughlin says brain scans of those who stayed in the orphanages longer revealed physical evidence of development problems. We see this thinning of the brain, early thinning, in many different areas, but especially in the areas which process complex language. In those regions, 
you see the result of something called synaptic pruning. The neural circuits and connections that are designed to process that input, when they're not being utilized, they get pruned away. And we think that when this happens continuously and on a large scale, it actually contributes to thinning in the cortex. She says this thinning of the outer grey matter of the brain, seen in children in Romanian orphanages, has also been found among children in poor areas in the U.S., So the idea here is there's an input from the environment that is absent or that is reduced in some way. Katie McLaughlin thinks the orphanage children's brains have been harmed from their not getting enough stimulation, that they've not been talked to or played with enough. And she thinks, to some degree, the same may be true for some poor children in the U.S. Children growing up in poverty often have less consistent and predictable interactions with adults That might be because, for example, they have a single parent who has to work rotating shifts at a job in order to make ends meet. There could be genetics at play here. But Katie McLaughlin says at birth, the brains of children who are born to parents living in poverty look no different to those of children born to wealthier households. The differences emerge in the second year of life, she says. So some children growing up in poverty you think could grow into adults who then have a harder time finding their way through life, planning for the future, reacting to the world they've got to live in. Absolutely. How sure can Katie McLaughlin be that she's proved exactly how poverty might change the way you think? She admits that even the Romanian orphanage study, which she finds compelling, is not hard evidence of cause and effect. It's difficult to know, right? We can really only make guesses about what the most important ingredient is. If I were to put my money somewhere, I would put it on the absence of a caregiver um, because of... But you um, can't be sure. We can't be sure. I'm up. Marika Claywitter. I'm a professor of public policy and governance at the Evans School of Public Affairs of the University of Washington. An area of personal interest for me, but also for for our podcast, is the way that so-called social issues, and I, I use that to mean you know everything ranging from sexual violence to reproductive health to LGBTQ issues uh, to systemic racism and immigration, are often separated from the thing that we consider to be the economy. Like people tend to silo off the economy as banking laws and maybe wages. And I feel like you have really um, written a lot about and and in your um, in your work as a professor, you talk a lot about the intersection of those two or sort of how inseparable they are. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Um, what I would say is that economy is a social institution. So much of our culture and our relationships and our institutions like families and communities are are just embedded in the economy and the economy is embedded in those institutions. And of course, 
now um, the economy goes far beyond any given geographic community and is global in all kinds of ways that have created um, new issues and problems and opportunities in our smaller communities and families. But they're so interrelated that I, I think you can't easily divide them. Um, in my research, I look at a lot of um, labor market policies, for example, um, labor market discrimination based on sexual orientation or um, kind of the wage levels of people and how those are set. And both of those are social and psychological processes that um, are about people relating to each other's in, in, to each other in different ways, depending on their cultural norms and our social social norms. There's a lot of long-term impacts and long-term economic impacts to things like, uh, you know, discrimination based in, you know, based on sexuality. Um, what what have you found in your research um, as far as like the the long-term impacts? Uh, well, for most of the stuff on my um, sexual orientation research, we can't look at very long-term impacts because the data have been uh, just recently collected. Um, it really wasn't until the early 90s that we had any data on on um, individuals and labor market earnings that was connected to information about um, who they were living with, who they were partnered with, or sexual identity of any kind. Um, so we haven't been able to track that um, very easily. There's some some research coming out now that is allowing us to understand kind of educational patterns by sexual orientation or by gender identity and how those are mapping into later life outcomes. But that's still pretty new to be able to, to even look at those issues. So even the availability of data is really important. But let me give you a different example that came up in my class um, just last week. And that class is about asset building for low-income families. So how do families build wealth and economic uh, opportunity and well-being by saving money, by getting education, by buying homes? And last week we were talking about home ownership and about how redlining of particular geographic um, areas within cities was done by the U.S. government and and um, it, they specifically were drawing lines around African American communities and low income communities and saying the government's not going to guarantee loans in those areas and also uh, real estate agents were not allowed to uh, show people uh, areas um, that were outside of their racial makeup. And so these forces together meant that a lot of African Americans and other um, racial minorities in the U.S. weren't able to buy homes, you know, uh, 60, 80 years ago, which meant that they didn't have wealth to, to pass on to their children. Their children didn't have access to schools in, in communities where there were large, uh, um, there were more integrated income um, levels, and so the schools were better. And so that kind of homeownership policy has had implications for all the generations after that. And I feel like gentrification is actually, like, like the gentrification that then occurs later as we're seeing sort of happen in Seattle, where those traditionally redlined neighborhoods are now the slightly more affordable neighborhoods that 
middle class white people are moving into um, is one of the few places where we sort of all are okay um, overlapping financial and social issues. Um, and even then, I feel like people don't always quite put those those things together. Where do you think this comes from, this this desire to to separate apart, you know, these are issues that have to do with money and these are issues that have to do with life when, you know, most of us would admit that money is a pretty big part of what determines most things in our life. Oh, that's an interesting question. Why do we separate them? I mean, I think there's some, there's definitely some benefits to thinking about policies separately, it's easier, right? I mean, to look at the whole of the social structure and economic structure is really difficult to do at once. Um, it's easy. It's um, And certainly um, those people in power who wanted to maintain certain uh, advantages in the economy and in social structures have, have um, incentives to keep things separate. Um, but it's also partly just an American thing, I think. Um, that American dream, that belief that so many of us at all income levels want to believe that all we have to do is work hard and get a little luck and we're going to be able to be the next rich person. Um, I think that also contributes in the U.S. to us keeping the economy and economic factors separate from social issues. Right, and I, I think... I think you're exactly right. That idea that, you know, all you have to do is um, work really hard and you can somehow overcome like any and all systemic barriers because they weren't economic barriers. And the only thing keeping you from what you want is hard work. Um, I right. I kind of got on this issue because I was thinking about reproductive health, um, because to me, the link between reproductive health access and and money is really direct. If I did not have access to reproductive health care, my financial outcomes might be different because my entire life might be different. And I, I wrote right. about this recently. What I did not realize was that that was a somewhat controversial remark to make or or it was two things that people were not expecting to see put together, which surprised me. In your work, have you ever been surprised by finding sort of something social and so something economic and, and had people sort of reject the idea that it was that it was economically based? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think maybe the closest might get to is that people, I think, miss the idea that schools and how we fund schools is a very social issue that we in in the US we have this very localized funding of schools which of course means that poor communities create poor schools so it's not just it's not just where you live isn't just a social thing it's a very economic issue and that that again perpetuates the wealth and access to to human capital that allows people to get to ha get ahead later so that reminds me uh, of, of a, obviously a large funding issue we're dealing with right now in Washington, which is education. Um, you yes. are a professor at the UW, and you've studied a lot of um, sort of Washington economics. So I'm going to ask you two questions. What is something that Washington does great that, like, other states would be well-suited to model after? And where where is Washington doing poorly in our in our thinking around economics and social issues? 
Mm. So one thing that I absolutely love about our state is um, the ability of some people to really use evidence-based policymaking. And there's certainly some some um, limits to that. But the state has funded the Washington State Institute for Public Policy for many, many years. And they do their best to collect evidence about what programs and policies have worked in Washington and other places and try and create a benefit cost analysis of all kinds of social and economic policies. Do you have an so example? Things like, oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> the visiting, the home nurse visiting for um, at-risk parents, parents who might we might expect would be having difficulty in providing great parenting to their newborn infant, and is a program that we see has huge benefits for both the kids, and actually here's an uh, uh, interesting, funny finding that surprised me, it has a lot of benefits for the parents, like in their employment outcomes and their economic outcomes. Interesting. So that's a great example where looking at the um, evaluations of this program that have been done in various places show that this really pays off, not just from a personal perspective of helping these people, both the babies and their parents, but from a, a public um, cost perspective, it also pays off um, many times over. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, yeah, I love that idea of, of instead of, um, you know, a lot of like like welfare to work programs and other other social programs that don't actually have very good outcomes. A lot of states keep trying them with their block grants. And if we have right. found something that works, that's sort of unrelated or not unrelated, but but would seem unrelated. And then it does work like. Why would we not roll with that? That seems like such a good answer. Okay, so what are we doing wrong? Where are you giving us an F? So definitely we need to work on the education piece, which you were talking about, but um, and funding it everywhere um, in the state, but um, also on food security. We don't do very well on food security. Um, we have a lot of hungry people in the state, and it just feels like really we can't. That just seems like a problem that we really need to work on, and, and whether that's through um, kind of serving food at schools better, making sure, of course, the, the lunch-shaming pieces a piece that we need to work on, making sure that all kids have access to good food at school and over the summer. Um, And then more generally, adults need food too, and making sure that everyone has access to food through food banks or other distribution places, and including um, food stamps or SNAP benefits. And food insecurity early on in life has like really apparent long-term economic impacts um, because of, of the stress and like the development on young brains too like it's 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 a cost saving measure in the long run to to ensure that kids have proper nutrition we are finding out so much more about that as we're learning we're both we're knowing to look there for that those issues that little kids babies and little children learn a lot about um, how to manage life early um, early on and stress and a lack of hope and a lack of feeling of efficacy and ability to manage their lives early on because their families don't have access to food or education, it seems risky, um, their neighborhoods aren't safe. All these things really feed into to kids not being able to manage later on because their brains haven't developed that capacity. 
I think uh, it's interesting you said one of the one of the issues is that we we don't know to look there always or we haven't known to look there for research. And I think that that speaks to this larger issue that we didn't we've never thought to look at what food insecurity does to a childhood brain and then what it means for their overall earning and, and what it means for their dependence on social services later on in life, because one of those things is social and one of them is economic. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And also just to think, yeah, think broader about what helps, what helps people become adults who can um, function and are healthy and happy. I mean, if that's your goal, mapping back from that, it's clear to see that having a childhood that was safe and secure in all kinds of ways, having a home, um, having food, having a good school that can support families and having a community where people feel like they belong and that they are accepted and that there are resources if they need them. All those things feed into both parents and kids and everyone else feeling secure in a way that's going to promote them giving back to the community. Brian Stevenson, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. I wanted to begin by asking you about something that you say often, and every time I have heard it, I have thought, that's interesting, but I'm not sure I quite understand it, which is that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. What do you mean by that? You know, America is an incredibly wealthy country, but we've always had enormous stratification. Uh, the wealth of the colonies was built on uh, a genocide of removing Native Americans from lands that they occupied. We kept their names, but we made them leave. Um, there were millions of Native people on this continent before white settlers came, and we killed them uh, through famine and war and disease, and we didn't really acknowledge the injustice of that, the unfairness of that, because we were persuaded that our economic security and our political development required the acquisition of these lands. And it began this way of thinking about wealth that is disconnected uh, from the inequality, the injustice, the abuse, the oppression that is sometimes used to create that wealth. And that, uh, that habit was reinforced uh, through slavery. And we created great wealth in new territories, in the South, in the colonies, by relying on enslaved people and the labor and the uh, benefits that that created without any real thinking about how that wealth was sustained by abuse and oppression and inequality and injustice. And even after slavery, I don't think we ever really dealt with the unfairness of exploiting people for decades uh, centuries, and then doing nothing to help make them whole. And it wasn't just uh, formerly enslaved people. It was poor whites that came to this country as immigrants who were also often abused in working places and mines. Uh, and this idea has emerged in America that wealth is created by people with great talent and great ability. And we value wealth. We respect wealth. We admire wealth. And we disdain the poor. 
Uh, we blame the poor. We fault the poor for not achieving more economic security. And we have, a, I think, a really unevolved uh, attitude about, about how to address poverty. When I look at our history of using power and abuse to sustain and create structural poverty and institutionalize it without any shame, it makes me question whether we truly understand what poverty represents. There are a lot of countries across the world uh, that are poor. But in most of the developing world, 90% of the people, 80% of the people are poor. And when you look at your neighbors and you look at the people on the other side of town, you don't see people who have great wealth and you don't internalize what it means to be poor because everybody's poor. But in this country, poor people uh, live in proximity with great wealth and what they see on TV and what they see in politics and what they see in power are, are, are largely people who have enough wealth and support. And so I think it's actually really hard to be poor in a country like ours where you're, you're often pressured to internalize what it means to be poor. You begin to blame yourself. And so for me, it's important to redefine what it is we are dealing with when we deal with poverty. And that definition begins in recognizing that the opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. If we actually had been just, to those communities that we removed from the land, if we had been just to the formerly enslaved, if we'd been just to immigrants who came and gave great wealth, Irish, Italian, uh, South American, Mexican, we would actually be in a very different place when it comes to dealing with structural poverty. And so for me, if we're going to end poverty, we're going to have to elevate our commitment to justice. We're going to actually have to talk about the institutions and the histories that have created this sustained poverty. And that's what I mean when I say the opposite of poverty is justice. It, it means that we've got to actually think about how our indifference to unjust, unfair, exploitative, oppressive treatment of the poor, of low-income workers, of immigrants has created a nation that is so economically stratified. And we're not going to get to ending that stratification, ending that poverty until we increase our commitment to doing what's just. I recognize and I apologize for the size of this next question. What is justice? Justice is a constant struggle. I, I wish I could define something precise uh, that I could give you an equilibrium that was the answer uh, to what justice is. But after doing what I've done for as long as I've done it, I, I am persuaded that justice is a constant struggle. It is something that can be achieved when people of goodwill work hard uh, to be fair, uh, when they think about uh, what's appropriate, what's reasonable, uh, what's just. And it's like being in an ocean uh, in a rowboat. You, you have to keep working at it if you're going to make progress. Otherwise, you start letting other forces carry you in directions that are going to end up in places that are unjust, unfair. It's what happens when people come together and aspire to achieve something that is equal and fair and humane and uplifts everyone. You know, Dr. King said, <laughs> uh, justice is what love looks like in public. And, and there is something to this idea that it's a commitment to embracing the people around you, protecting the people around you, protecting those who are disfavored or excluded uh, or who are unpopular. And it's a commitment to, uh, to be governed by values and principles and norms that we all share. Uh, but even with those norms and values, it doesn't really work unless there's a there's constant struggle. 
We just heard clips today starting with Counterspin explaining the divide and conquer tactics meant to stoke anger between the generations rather than between the classes. Off Kilter looked at the frames through which we are shown low income aid programs. The Inquiry examined the lasting effects of poverty on the brain. The Other Washington took a holistic view of economics. Rutger Bergman's TED Talk argued that the poverty mindset is a result of poverty rather than the cause of it, and argued for a universal universal basic income to solve the problem. And finally, we just heard Brian Stevenson, a real-life hero, interviewed on The Ezra Klein Show explaining his argument that the opposite of poverty is not wealth, but justice. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And if you are new to the show, I promise that right here we usually play voicemails from the audience. Uh, it just so happens that every once in a while, including the previous episode and again today, I just don't have time for them because I have a lot of things to tell you about. Um, before I get to my main conversation, I want to remind you that we are up for a podcast award, and you can nominate us to get us into the final round of voting at podcastawards.com. You just go there. It couldn't be simpler. You cl cl click on the big banner that says, you know, the voting process. You sign up. You follow all the directions. You're all very capable of that. And then uh, go down to the news and politics category. We're right there in the list. You select us. You can nominate us for that category and any other shows you like in any other categories, submit and you're done. And what I want to talk to you about today is the anger I have been feeling. And it's actually uh, that anger that inspired the creation of today's episode. Now, I, I've never been you know religious in any way, but I did watch Pulp Fiction within the last couple of months. And so something about working on today's episode uh, triggered that quote in my head, uh, Samuel L. Jackson of course, quoting the Bible, the path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly my brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who would attempt to poison and destroy my brothers by making an episode of this podcast, which I will use to lay out to the best of my ability a case for a better and more equal and more just world. And I, I went back, I read that quote, I thought, man, now that is the sort of badass angry God I can get on the side of. And I didn't know that podcasting uh, went all the way back to biblical times, but that is speaking my language. So a couple of things happened in quick succession that got me super pissed off. And, uh, and as I said, inspired the creation of today's show. And I want to tell you about what led me to this point. Uh, the first shoe to drop was Rush Limbaugh. And now I know what you're thinking. Like, what are you doing getting mad at Rush Limbaugh? He's Rush Limbaugh. You, you ignore him. You make fun of him. Whatever. Uh, it, it goes a little deeper than that. So just a little background. I, as sort of out of interest, sort of, uh, you know, morbid curiosity, I subscribe to Rush Limbaugh's podcast where he does like just these one minute you know, maybe 90 second little commentaries on a, you know, mostly daily basis. Just, you know, my, I started thinking, Hey, I just want to know what they're talking about. Like what's on the top of his mind. Um, because, because, uh, you know, I've become aware that basically the conservative media and the progressive media don't even have the same conversations. We're not even talking about the same things. So just out of curiosity, I was like, uh, what's he talking about? But now that I listened to it, 
I've realized it's it's really more of a mental exercise for me to figure out how he's twisting the truth or outright lying, what information he is blatantly leaving out to mislead listeners, and so on. So it's it's a nice little uh, you know quick little exercise for me to just see. All right, this is how he's framing it. This is how I know things are in reality. Or he inspires me to do a little research, and I think, oh, okay, here's the obvious you know, more nuanced truth, and boy, is he misleading people uh, in, in a pretty blatant way. That's horrible. So come with me for a moment, listen to Rush Limbaugh and what he has to say about the uh, minimum wage increase in Seattle, and I'll lay out the details after. So three years ago, liberals in Seattle insisted on raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Business owners and others warned that it would cost jobs and hurt the economy. Now, a study conducted by economists at the University of Washington confirms what everybody knew except the left. Instead of helping workers, the minimum wage increase hurt them. The study found a dramatic effect on business owners who stopped hiring. They reduced hours for existing workers and they let other workers go. The study estimates that the average low-wage worker in Seattle lost $125 a month due to the minimum wage increase. The losses it caused far outweighed any benefits. Now, I told you Monday on my show what's happening in McDonald's. Their stock was tanking. They turned it around when they began installing thousands of robot kiosks to bring down labor costs. The kiosks don't demand $15 an hour. Liberals believe that business owners have piles of cash sitting around unused that can support the costly policies the left demands. But it doesn't work like that. Keeping labor costs under control is crucial to the survival of any business and knowing what they are. When liberals arrogantly raise those costs arbitrarily, it always hurts the employees. They are the ones that suffer. But even with this fresh evidence, liberals will never admit that they were wrong. They'll find ways to inflict even more pain on the economy and kill more jobs. That's just what they do when they're trying to help. So I heard that and I thought, well, that's strange because every study I've literally ever heard of says that when you raise the minimum wage, it doesn't hurt employment. So I wonder what's different here. This is one of those cases where he inspired me to go do a little bit more research, but it didn't take much to see what he was doing. So it's true. A study did come out, you may have even heard about it, that says that uh, the labor market in Seattle was hurt by the increase in the minimum wage. What he doesn't bother to mention is that there's another study that says the exact opposite. So first of all, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, debate going on, but I'm going to be super honest and fair and say that the study that says that uh, labor was hurt in Seattle has an edge. It appears to have an edge because the, the data they're drawing from is more detailed. So the, the sort of standard way of doing these types of studies is just count employees and they use restaurants as a proxy because, you know, a lot of people working at the minimum wage work in restaurants. So these studies, they go, they count the number of employees in restaurants working at the minimum wage and call it a day. This study that he's referring to goes deeper and actually follows uh, the number of hours being worked. So you may have the same number of employees, but if they get their hours cut because of the increase in, in the minimum wage, well, then that would be reflected in this data. And that's what it appears to show. 
case closed, right? No, of course not, because it's a lot more complicated than that. The biggest thing that he's leaving out is that Seattle right now is booming like no other place in the country, almost. They have an unemployment rate of around 2%. That is unheard of, incredibly low. And what happens when you have an incredibly low unemployment rate is that employers have to start bidding up wages just to find people willing to take the job because there are so few unemployed people. So the number of people working at hours at the minimum wage may be going down, not because they're getting their hours cut and they're sitting at home. It could be because they're getting their wages bid up and they are actually working above the minimum wage, even though the minimum wage has already been increased. And it's the economic boom that's happening, clearly happening in the midst of the minimum wage going up so that it doesn't appear to be having a negative effect. And so there is an incredibly legitimate argument to be made that the study is confusing the effects of the minimum wage hike with the effects of a booming economy. But again, I will be super honest and upfront and say that according to all of the data as it's laid out and the analysis of all the skeptics on both sides of the argument, the final conclusion genuinely appears to be that we don't know yet. It's too early to tell. The data is not clear enough to explain exactly a causal relationship between the minimum wage hike and exactly uh, what has happened in the labor market. So we shouldn't draw conclusions. That's what an honest person would tell you. Limbaugh, of course, doesn't do that. And so, okay, so let's get back to what I'm mad about. So, what, am I mad at Rush Limbaugh for misleading people? No, that's what he does. I expect him to do that. It rolls off my back because we shouldn't be mad at things that we fully expect to happen. Am I mad at the New York Times article for the way they laid out both sides? No. Am I mad at uh, the people who ran those studies who didn't do quite a good enough job, no matter how good of a job they did, that we didn't quite get the data we needed and it's still left a little bit inclusive? No, I'm not mad at any of that. What I'm mad about is what no one talked about. So what you heard Rush Limbaugh say there was that wages based on hours worked dropped by $125 a month. Okay, great. So we have that data point. Minimum wage workers saw their earnings go down by $125 a month. Is that the only piece of information we need about those workers' lives? Let me lay it out with some hypothetical people living in desperate poverty. I'm just, I'm making up these, these people and these numbers to make a point. We have two workers living in absolute abject poverty. They're making $5,400 per year. It's, it's unbelievably poor. That breaks down to $450 per month. You can't even imagine living on that. But just to demonstrate, you have these two people. They are exactly identical in every way. They're the same race and gender. They weren't brought up the same way. Everything is the same about them. And they are both earning $450 a month for the work they do. Which one of them is better off? Is either one of them better off? Is there any way to tell? As I said, they're identical people. So how can we know? What questions should we ask to figure out which one is better off? Well, since I made these people up, I'll tell you the difference between them. One of them 
is living in a Republican-Libertarian dystopian nightmare where there is no minimum wage. And because this person is in such dire straits, they are so desperate for money, so desperate for work, that they agreed to work for $1 an hour. And they earn those $450 per month by working 15 hours a day, seven days a week. That gives them 30 minutes to commute to and from work, eight hours to sleep, and presumably they have to eat during their commute, and hopefully their boss lets them take a lunch break. Now, the other person lives in Seattle and works for $15 an hour, but for whatever reason, they can't find work. They are barely, barely employed, and they can only manage to scrape together 30 hours of work per month. That breaks down to only one seven and a half hour shift per week. And they end up at the end of the month with only $450. Not in a good situation. Total abject poverty. But which of them is better off? They're earning exactly the same amount of money. One does it by working for 30 hours, and one earns it by working for 450 hours. Clearly, when you break it down in this incredibly extreme way, it is obvious which one is better off. Clearly, when you push the numbers to the extreme like this, it is easy to see why working fewer hours is beneficial and should be considered as part of the calculation. And, you know, you can push it further. You can say, okay, so the guy was uh, working 30 hours at $15 an hour. Uh, What if it went down to 29. So now he's only making $435 to the other guy's $450. Now the other guy's making more. Is the guy making more money better off now? I think most people would still agree. No, he's not. How far could you push that? Would you only work 28 hours and only make $420 and still consider yourself better off than the guy making $450? I sure would, because at the very least, it leaves you with all that extra time to spend looking for another job. So like I say, these numbers are extreme, and they don't relate directly to real life very well. But basically, by making them extreme, it's like putting the situation under a magnifying glass, and you can see the details of what's going on more clearly, and understand that maybe more is going on than meets the eye at first glance. So what I am pissed off about is why neither... Rush Limbaugh, nor the New York Times even think to consider hours worked and the reduction of hours worked and the possible benefits of working fewer hours as even a data point to consider. It it never crosses anyone's mind to think of anything but dollars earned. And when it comes to working fewer hours, keep in mind, I'm not talking about taking those hours so you can relax. I mean, think about the economic benefits of working fewer hours. If you have children, it means that's fewer hours you need to find someone else to watch your kids. And if you're paying for childcare, that's an enormous economic hit to the individual who has to pay for that service. So what I want to see is if those minimum wage workers in Seattle who are working fewer hours and getting paid a little bit less, how else is that affecting their life? Is those fewer hours they're working at a higher rate mean that they have to pay for less childcare? 
Does it mean that they get to see their kids more? Does it mean that they get to see their spouse more? Does it mean they have better human relationships? Does it mean they're healthier because they're working less? I don't know. I don't have the answer to those questions, and I'm not saying that it's better to work fewer hours on the minimum wage than more. What poor people need is more money, no doubt about it. But to not even consider the other aspects of that equation, I find completely reprehensible. Now, let's hear the second thing that pissed me off uh, shortly after that uh, Limbaugh incident. This comes from Planet Money, NPR, right? Supposed to be, you know, pretty pretty liberal, pretty open-minded people uh, saying good things to good people, and and we all uh, love NPR. And this is what uh, Planet Money did on their episode that they titled On Second Thought, meaning when you gather new information, you're supposed to change your mind and say, huh. On second thought, you know what? I guess I was wrong all along, and now that I have this new information, I'm more informed, and I'm going to uh, go forward with this new information. They they give uh, you know a variety of examples during this episode of people having their minds changed, and the first is about the cost of Medicaid. First up, Catherine Baker. She's a health economist at Harvard, and she told us about something you hear about a lot, and that is hospital emergency rooms are full of people who one do not have health insurance, and two, do not have a medical emergency. Because in the emergency room, under federal law, they have to treat you, even if you don't have insurance. They can bill you later, but they cannot send you away. If you had insurance and you could afford it, you'd go to the doctor. But if you're uninsured, the emergency room is the only place you can afford to get care. And this is a problem for for a few reasons. For one thing, it makes emergency rooms more crowded in general. And for another... It's really inefficient. The emergency room is an expensive, bad place to get basic medical care. And so here's what Catherine Baker thought. If you gave people health insurance, you could solve this problem. They'd be less likely to go to the emergency room when they didn't have a medical emergency. Their health would improve. You would spend less money because insured people don't go to the emergency room to get their basic care. And by the way, over and above the emergency room thing and the the economic case, Baker just believed in expanding health insurance. So I've always held the view that it's a public policy priority to insure low-income people and to make sure they have enough food and housing. But I know those are my views as a voter Uh and as a taxpayer. Uh That doesn't mean that there's scientific evidence to say that's what everyone should think or that's what we ought to do. A while back, Baker heard about this thing happening in Oregon. The state decided to expand its health insurance program for the poor, its Medicaid program, to thousands more people. But Baker says there were still way more uninsured people than there were available spots. So just as a fair way to hand out those limited spots, they held a lottery. They got a whole bunch of people to sign up on a waiting list. They drew names by chance. And the people whose names were drawn got a chance to get the public insurance. And the people whose names weren't didn't. This seems kind of cold or cruel somehow. But, you know, they had to choose some way to do this. And this is the way they chose. And crucially for Baker, Oregon's decision to do it this way created this this sort of natural experiment. You know, you have this big pool of people. Some of them are randomly selected to get Medicaid. Some of them are randomly denied. And Baker looked at this and realized if you followed both groups of people and compared what happened to them, you could learn so much. 
that provided a perfect opportunity to figure out exactly what Medicaid does. In particular, you could actually test whether people, in fact, go to the emergency room less after they get Medicaid. So Baker and her colleagues went out to Oregon, talked with the people who were getting insurance and the people who weren't and with, you know, all the officials. And then they posted their entire study plan in advance. They explained everything they were going to measure and how they were going to measure them so that everybody knew they weren't just like waiting until the end and cherry picking the results they liked. Once they did this, it was just a matter of, of waiting for the results to come in. And then the day arrived. It's almost like a movie. We joked we should get popcorn and just watch the results spool out. <laughs> and where were you? And were you with, like, your co-authors? Just what, where, where were you when the data came in in this way? Life isn't like a movie. I was sitting by myself looking at my computer screen, and I got the results via email. She clicked open on the email, and she saw the result. People who got health insurance did not go to the emergency room less. In fact, they went to the emergency room more. 40% more than people who did not get insurance. Her first thought was like, maybe they'd done the math wrong or made some error in the processing. It was so surprising. I had not expected a result of nearly that magnitude. A 40% increase was really much higher than I had even imagined. But the math was correct. Bottom line, Baker says her study showed very clearly that when people get Medicaid, they get more health care. Not only do they go to the emergency room, they go to the regular doctor more as well. Her study found that Medicaid does not save taxpayers money. For science, it seemed like a really interesting, important finding. And frankly, not every paper elicits that reaction. Sure. <laughs> I think most of my papers are dull. So this seemed... <laughs> Important and a major scientific contribution, and that's exciting. On the other hand, I felt disappointed for the cause of expanding health insurance coverage. Uh-huh. The thing you're discovering as a scientist is bad for the thing that you want as a citizen. Yes. And that's really hard as a person who is both of those people at the same time. I have to say, this is a thing that I love about science. It is, it is this whole system of thought and action that is designed to change people's minds. Sure, you, you have some belief about the world, some story that you're telling yourself, and that's fine. But then you test that belief. And if it doesn't hold up, you change your mind. You come up with a new story. And obviously, this is an idealized version of science. I know it doesn't always work that way, but sometimes it does, right? It worked in this case. Catherine Baker changed her mind. Here is her revised story about what happens when people get Medicaid. Wearing my economist hat, I couldn't really be all that surprised, which is what made me realize my prior view was more of a hope than anything else. Because one of the basic things we know from economics is that when something costs less, people use it more. The emergency department's no exception. It used to be really expensive to go. Even though they couldn't turn people away, they could still issue a big bill at the end. And so uninsured people were reluctant to use the emergency department because they couldn't pay for it. Once people get insurance, they don't have to pay anymore. So they go to the emergency room more often. Aha, uh -huh. well, checkmate, liberals. You see what just happened? Science came and bit you in the ass. One of your own, one of your lefty, bleeding-heart liberals did the science and had it shoved right back in her face. Turns out, 
giving everyone Medicaid doesn't do anyone any good. It just costs the taxpayers money, just as we thought. Those people are going to start using all the healthcare they want on the taxpayer dime. And what do we have to show for it? Oh, wait, but then there was like the last 15 seconds of that clip. The other results of the study were mixed, but it did show that there were several ways in which people on Medicaid did seem to be better off. Uh, They reported being in better health. They were less likely to get into financial trouble. And Baker still thinks that giving Medicaid to more people is a good idea. She thinks it's worth the money. But she says that is her view as a citizen, not as a scientist. Well, shit, is that it? Is it only that people end up in better health and more financially stable? Well, geez, it's too bad those factors can't factor into an economic model that we could study, and all we're left with is the squishy liberal feelings of that woman who is now at odds with herself and doesn't believe that Medicaid is viable when she's speaking as an economist, because for some reason, no one thinks to include the other bits of data. Even if you want to be cold-hearted about it, why in the world would you not consider the economic benefits of people being healthier and more financially stable? So excuse my anger, or better yet, join me in it and ask what the fuck is wrong with economists and economic reporters who don't even think to ask the question of what happens when people lead happier, healthier lives and have access to working less, access to health care so that they can go to the doctor or the emergency room when they are in need of medical services, because as it stands now, many people simply don't get treated when they are sick or injured. So what do you think might happen if a person is healthier because they have access to Medicaid and they go to the doctor and or the emergency room more often? What do you think would happen if they're working at the minimum wage and their minimum wage increases, but their hours get cut so they don't end up making more money, but they spend more time with their family, more time with their children? Even if you don't care about people at all and you only want to think about the numbers, do you think there's even a chance that a person living in those circumstances would end up benefiting economically because they end up raising healthier children, because they end up uh, going to work more often, because they don't have to take time off for illness, because they can live longer and stay longer in the workforce and continue contributing longer? Do you think there's even a chance that there's an economic benefit to these kinds of policies to have people work less and have access to better health care? I think there's a chance, but I don't know, because no one ever thinks to ask the fucking question. If you want to chime in on this or anything else, please do. I promise to get back to voicemail soon. The number to dial 202-999-3991. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Don't forget to head over to podcastawards.com to nominate us in the news and politics category. And please keep leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Laugh podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. And it-
it's a cry and shame How we get so trained 